Section 39 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 19. Persia and the Tabriz Caravan Trail, Part 1. A short trundle to the summit of a sloping pass, and then a winding descent of several miles brings me to a position commanding a view of an extensive valley that looks out from this distance as lovely as a dreaming vision of paradise. An hour later, and I am bowling along beneath overhanging peach and mulberry trees, following a volunteer horseman to Muhammad Ali Khan's garden. Before reaching the garden, a gang of bare-legged labourers, engaged in patching up a mud wall, favour me with a fusillade of stones, one of which caresses me on the ankle, and makes me limp like a Greenwich pensioner, when I dismount a minute or two afterward. This is their peculiar way of complimenting a lone Ferengi. Muhammad Ali Khan is found to be rather a moon-faced individual under thirty who together with his subordinate officials are occupying tents in a large garden here during the summer they dispense justice to applicants for the same within their jurisdiction and transact such other official business as is brought before them in persia the distribution of justice consists chiefly in the officials ruthlessly looting the applicants of everything lootable, and the weightiest task of the officials is intriguing together against the pocket of the luckless white, who ventures upon seeking equity at their hands. A sorrowful-visaged husbandman is evidently experiencing the easy simplicity of Persian civil justice as I enter the garden. He wears the mournful expression of a man conscious of being irretrievably doomed, while the festive Khan and his equally festive Munshibashi, chief secretary, are laying their wicked heads together and whispering mysteriously, fifty paces away from everybody, ever and anon looking suspiciously around as though fearful of the presence of eavesdroppers. After duly binning, a young man called Abdullah, who seems to be at the beck and call of everybody, brings forth the samovar, and we drink the customary tea of good fellowship, after which they examine such of my modest effects as take their fancy. The Munshibashi, as becomes a man of education, is quite infatuated with my pocket map of Persia. The fact that Persia occupies so great a space on the map in comparison with the small portions of adjoining countries visible around the edges, makes a powerful appeal to his national vanity, and he regards me with increased affection every time I trace out for him the comprehensive boundary line of his native Iran. After nightfall we repair to the principal tent, and Mohammed Ali Khan and his secretary consume the evening hours in the joyous occupation of alternately smoking the kalian, a Persian water-pipe not unlike the Turkish nargileh, 
except that it has a straight stem instead of a coiled tube, and swallowing glasses of raw arak every few minutes. They furthermore amuse themselves by trying to induce me to follow their noble example, and in poking fun at another young man because his conscientious scruples regarding the Mohammedan injunction against intoxicants forbids him indulging with them. About eight o'clock the Khan becomes a trifle sentimental and very patriotic, producing a pair of silver-mounted horse-pistols from a corner of the tent, and waving them theatrically about. He proclaims aloud his mighty devotion to the Shah. At nine o'clock Abdullah brings in the supper. The Khan's vertebra has become too limp and willowy to enable him to sit upright, and he has become too indifferent to such coarse, unspiritual things as stewed chicken and musk melons to care about eating any, while the Munshibashi's affection for me on account of the map has become so overwhelming that he deliberately empties all the chicken onto my sheet of bread, leaving none whatever for himself and the phenomenal young person with the conscientious scruples. When bedtime arrives, it requires the united exertions of Abdullah and the phenomenal young man to partially undress Muhammad Ali Khan and drag him to his couch on the floor, the Khan being limp as a dish-rag and a moderately bulky person. The Munshibashi, as becomes an individual of lesser rank and superior mental attainments, is not quite so helpless as his official superior, but on retiring he humorously reposes his feet on the pillow and his head on nothing but the bare floor of the tent, and stubbornly refuses to permit Abdullah to alter either his pillow or his position. The phenomenal young man and myself likewise seek our respective pile of quilts. Abdullah removes the lamp, draws a curtain over the entrance of the tent, and retires. The Persians, as representing the Shiite division of the Mohammedan religion, consider themselves by long odds the holiest people on the earth far holier than the Turks, whom they religiously despise as Sunnites, and unworthy to loose the latchets of their shoes. The Koran strictly enjoins upon them great moderation in the use of intoxicating drinks, yet certain of the Persian nobility are drinking this raw intoxicant by the quart daily. When asked why they don't use it in moderation, they reply, what is the good of drinking arak unless one drinks enough to become drunk and happy? Following this brilliant idea, many of them get drunk and happy regularly every evening. They likewise frequently consume as much as a pint before each meal to create a false appetite and make themselves feel boozy while eating. In the morning the Munshibashi with a soldier for escort accompanies me on horseback to Khoi, which is but about seven miles distance over a perfectly level road. Sad to say, the Munshibashi, besides his yearning affection for fiery, untamed Iraq, is a confirmed opium smoker, and after last night's debauch for supper and hitting the pipe this morning for breakfast, 
He doesn't feel very dashing in the saddle. Consequently, I have to accommodate myself to his pace. It is the slowest seven miles ever ridden on the road by a wheelman, I think. A funeral procession is a lively, rattling affair beside our onward progress toward the mud battlements of Coy. But there is no help for it. Whenever I venture to the fore a little, the dreamy-eyed Munshibashi regards me with a gaze of mild reproachfulness, and sings out in a gently chide-the-erring tone of voice, Kardash! Kardash! meaning, if we are brothers, why do you seem to want to leave me? Human nature could scarcely be proof against an appeal wherein endearment and reproach are so beautifully and harmoniously blended, and it always brings me back to a level with his horse. Reaching the suburbs of Coy, I am initiated into a new departure, new to myself at this time, of Persian sanctimoniousness. Halting at a fountain to obtain a drink, the soldier shapes himself for pouring the water out of the earthenware drinking vessel into my hands. Supposing this to be merely an indication of the Persian's own method of drinking, I motion my preference for drinking out of the jar itself. The soldier looks appealingly toward the Munshibashi, who tells him to let me drink, and then orders him to smash the jar. It then dawns upon my unenlightened mind that being a Ferengi I should have known better than to have allowed my unhallowed lips to a drinking vessel at a public fountain, defiling it by so doing so that it must be smashed in order that the sons of the true prophet may not unwittingly drink from it afterward and themselves become defiled. The Munshibashi pilots me to the residence of a certain wealthy citizen outside the city walls. This person, a mild-mannered, purring-voiced man, is seated in a room with a couple of Sayuds, or descendants of the prophet. They are helping themselves from a large platter of the finest pears, peaches, and egg-plums I ever saw anywhere. The room is carpeted with costly rugs and carpets, in which one's feet sink perceptibly at every step. The walls and ceiling are artistically stuccoed, and the doors and windows are gay with stained glass. Abandoning myself to the guidance of the Munshibashi, I ride around the garden walks, show them the bicycle, revolver, maps of Persia, etc. Like the Munshibashi, they become deeply interested in the map, finding much amusement and satisfaction in having me point out the location of different Persian cities, seemingly regarding my ability to do so as evidence of exceeding cleverness and erudition. The untravelled Persian of the northern provinces regard Tehran as the grand idea of a large and important city. If there is any place in the whole world larger and more important, they think it may perhaps be Stamboul. The fact that Stamboul is not on my map while Tehran is, they regard as conclusive proof of the superiority of their own capital.
the Moonshibashi's chief purpose in accompanying me hither has been to introduce me to the attention of the Hoikim. Although the pronunciation is a little different from Hakim, I attribute this to local brogue, and have been surmising this personage to be some doctor who, perhaps having graduated at a Frangistan medical college, the Munshibashi thinks will be able to converse with me. After partaking of fruit and tea, we continue on our way to the nearest gateway of the city proper, Koi being surrounded by a ditch and battlemented mud wall. Arriving at a large public enclosure, my guide sends in a letter, and shortly afterward delivers me over to some soldiers, who forthwith conduct me into the presence of not a doctor but Ali Khan, the governor of the city, an officer who hereabouts rejoices in the title of the Hoi Kim. The governor proves to be a man of superior intelligence. He has been Persian ambassador to France some time ago, and understands French fairly well. Consequently we manage to understand each other after a fashion, although he has never before seen a bicycle, his knowledge of the mechanical ingenuity of the Ferengis causes him to regard it with more intelligence than an untravelled native, and to better comprehend my journey and its object. Assisted by a dozen mullahs, priests, and officials in flowing gowns and henna-tinted beards and fingernails, the governor is transacting official business and he invites me to come into the council chamber and be seated. In a few minutes the noontide meal is announced. The governor invites me to dine with them, and leads the way into the dining room, followed by his councillors, who form in line behind him according to their rank. The dining room is a large, airy apartment, opening into an extensive garden, a bountiful repast is spread on yellow checkered tablecloths on the carpeted floor. The governor squats cross-legged at one end. The stately-looking wiseacres in flowing gowns range themselves along each side in a similar attitude, with much solemnity and show of dignity. They, at least so I fancy, evidently are anything but rejoiced at the prospect of eating with an infidel Ferengi. The governor, being a far more enlightened and consequently less bigoted personage, looks about him a trifle embarrassed, as if searching for some place where he can seat me in a position of becoming honour without offending the prejudices of his sanctimonious counsellors. Noting this, I at once come to his relief by taking the position farthest from him, attempting to imitate them in their cross-legged attitude. My unhappy attempt to sit in this uncomfortable attitude, uncomfortable at least to anybody unaccustomed to it, provokes a smile from his excellency, and he straightway orders an attendant to fetch in a chair and a small table. The councillors look on in silence, but they are evidently too deeply impressed with their own dignity and holiness to commit themselves to any such display of levity as a smile. 
a portion of each dish is placed upon my table, together with a traveller's combination knife, fork, and spoon, a relic, doubtless, of the governor's Parisian experience. His Excellency, having waited and kept the councillors waiting until these preparations are finished, motions for me to commence eating, and then begins himself. The repast consists of boiled mutton, rice pilau with curry, mutton chops, hard-boiled eggs with lettuce, a pastry of sweetened rice flour, musk melons, watermelons, several kinds of fruit, and for beverage glasses of iced sherbet. Of all the company, I alone use knife, fork, and plates. Before each Persian is laid a broad sheet of bread. Bending their heads over this, they scoop up small handfuls of pilau, and toss it dexterously into their mouths, scattering particles missing the expectantly opened receptacle fall back on the bread. This handy sheet of bread is used as a plate for placing a chop or anything else on, as a table napkin for wiping fingertips between courses, and now and then a piece is pulled off and eaten. When the meal is finished, an attendant waits on each guest with a brazen bowl and ewer of water and a towel. After the meal is over, the governor is no longer handicapped by the religious prejudices of the mollas, and leaving them he invites me into the garden to see his two little boys go through their gymnastic exercises. They are clever little fellows of about seven and nine, respectively, with large black eyes and clear olive complexions. All the time we are watching them, the governor's face is wreathed in a fond, parental smile. The exercises consist chiefly in climbing a thick rope dangling from a crossbeam. After seeing me ride the bicycle, the governor wants me to try my hand at gymnastics, but being nothing of a gymnast I respectfully beg to be excused. While thus enjoying a pleasant hour in the garden, a series of resounding thwacks are heard somewhere nearby and looking around some intervening shrubs, I observe a couple of farashes bastinadoing a culprit. Seeing me more interested in this novel method of administering justice than in looking at the youngsters trying to climb ropes, the governor leads the way thither. The man, evidently a riot, is lying on his back. His feet are lashed together, and held souls uppermost by means of a horizontal pole, while the farashes briskly belabour them with willow sticks. The soles of the riot's feet are hard and thick as rhinoceros hide, almost from habitually walking barefooted, and under these conditions his punishment is evidently anything but severe. The flagellation goes merrily and uninterruptedly forward until fifty sticks about five feet long and thicker than a person's thumb are broken over his feet without eliciting any signals of distress from the horny-hoofed riot, except an occasional sorrowful groan of Allah. 
He is then loosed and limps painfully away, but it looks like a rather hypocritical limp. After all, fifty sticks, by the by, is a comparatively light punishment, several hundred sometimes being broken at a single punishment. Upon taking my leave, the governor kindly details a couple of soldiers to show me to the best caravanserai, and to remain and protect me from the worry and annoyance of the crowds until my departure from the city. Arriving at the caravanserai, my valiant protectors undertake to keep the following crowd from entering the courtyard. The crowd refuses to see the justice of this arbitrary proceeding, and a regular pitched battle ensues in the gateway. The caravanserajis reinforce the soldiers, and by laying on vigorously with thick sticks, they finally put the rabble to flight. They then close the caravanserai gates until the excitement has subsided. Khoi is a city of perhaps fifty thousand inhabitants, and among them all there is no one able to speak a word of English. Contemplating the surging mass of woolly-hatted Persians from the Balakana, balcony, our word is taken from the Persian, of the caravanserai, and hearing nothing but unintelligible language, I detect myself unconsciously recalling the lines, Oh, it was pitiful, in a whole city full. It is the first large city I have visited without finding somebody capable of speaking at least a few words of my own language. Locking the bicycle up, I repair to the bazaar, my watchful and zealous attendants making the dust fly from the shoulders of such unlucky whites, whose eager inquisitiveness to obtain a good close look brings them within the reach of their handy staves. We are followed by immense crowds, a Ferengi being a rara avis in Khoi, and the fame of the wonderful Aspi I, horse of iron, has spread like wildfire through the city. In the bazaar I obtain Russian silver money, which is the chief currency of the country as far east as Zenjian. Partly to escape from the worrying crowds and partly to ascertain the way out next morning, as I intend making an early start, I get the soldiers to take me outside the city wall and show me the Tabriz road. A new caravanserai is in process of construction just outside the Tabriz gate, and I become an interested spectator of the Persian mode of building the walls of a house. These of the new caravanserai are nearly four feet thick. Parallel walls of mud bricks are built up, leaving an interspace of two feet or thereabouts. This is filled with stiff, well-worked mud, which is dumped in by buckets full and continually trampled by barefooted laborers. Harder bricks are used for the doorways and windows. The bricklayer uses mud for mortar and his hands for a trowel. He works without either level or plumb line and keeps up a doleful, melancholy chant from morning to night. The mortar is handed to him by an assistant by handsful, 
every workman is smeared and spattered with mud from head to foot as though glorying in covering themselves with the trademark of their calling strolling away from the busy builders we encounter a man the water boy of the gang bringing a three-gallon pitcher of water from a spring half a mile away being thirsty the soldiers shout for him to bring the pitcher scarcely conceiving it possible that these humble mud daubers would be so wretchedly sanctimonious i drink from the jar much to the disgust of the poor water carrier who forthwith empties the remainder away and returns with hurried trot to the spring for a fresh supply he would doubtless have smashed the vessel had it been smaller and of lesser value naturally i feel a trifle conscious stricken at having caused him so much trouble for he is a rather elderly man but the soldiers display no sympathy for him whatever apparently regarding a humble water carrier as a person of small consequence anyhow and they laugh heartily at seeing him trotting briskly back half a mile for another load had he taken the first water after a ferengi had drank from it and allowed his fellow workmen to unwittingly partake of the same it would probably have fared badly with the old fellow had they found it afterward returning cityward we meet our friend the munshibashi looking me up he is accompanied by a dozen better-class persians scattering friends and acquaintances of his whom he has collected during the day chiefly to show them my map of persia the mechanical beauty of the bicycle and the apparent victory over the laws of equilibrium in riding it being in the opinion of the scholarly munshibashi quite overshadowed by a map which shows tehran and koi and doesn't show stamboul and which shows the whole broad expanse of persia and only small portions of other countries this latter fact seems to have made a very deep impression upon the munshibashi's mind it appears to have filled him with the unalterable conviction that all other countries are insignificant compared with persia in his own mind this patriotic person has always believed this to be the case but he is overjoyed at finding his belief verified as he fondly imagines by the map of a ferengi returning to the caravanserai we find the courtyard crowded with people attracted by the fame of the bicycle the munshibashi straightway ascends to the balakhana tenderly unfolds my map and displays it for the inspection of the gaping multitude below while five hundred pairs of eyes gaze wonderingly upon it without having the slightest conception of what they are looking at he proudly traces with his finger the outlines of persia it is one of the most amusing scenes imaginable the munshibashi and myself surrounded by his little company of friends occupying the balakana proudly displaying to a mixed crowd of fully five hundred people a shilling map as a thing to be wondered at and admired 
after the departure of the Munshibashi and his friends, by invitation I pay a visit of curiosity to a company of dervishes. They themselves pronounce it Darwish, accompanying one of the caravanserai rooms. There are eight of them lolling about in one small room. Their appearance is disgusting and yet interesting. They are all but naked in deference to the hot weather, and to obtain a little relief from the lively tenants of their clothing. Prominent among their effects are panther or leopard skins, which they use as cloaks, small steel battle-axes, and huge spiked clubs. Their whole appearance is most striking and extraordinary. Their long black hair is dangling about their naked shoulders. They have the wild, haggard countenances of men whose lives are being spent in debauchery and excesses. Nevertheless, most of them have a decidedly intellectual expression. The Persian dervishes are a strange and interesting people. They spend their whole lives wandering from one end of the country to another, subsisting entirely by mendicancy, yet their cry instead of a beggar's supplication for charity is, Hook, hook, my right, my right. They affect the most wildly picturesque and eccentric costumes, often wearing nothing whatever but white cotton drawers and a leopard or panther skin thrown carelessly about their shoulders beside which they carry a huge spiked club or steel battle-axe and an arms-receiver. This latter is usually made of an oval gourd, polished and suspended on small brass chains. The better-class Persians have little respect for these wandering fakirs, but their wild, eccentric appearance makes a deep impression upon the simple-hearted villagers and the dervishes, whose wits are sharpened by constant knocking about, live mostly by imposing on their good nature and credulity. A couple of these worthies, arriving at a small village, affect their wildest and most grotesque appearance and proceed to walk with stately, majestic tread through the streets, gracefully brandishing their clubs or battle-axes, gazing fixedly at vacancy and reciting aloud from the Koran, with a peculiar and impressive intonation. They then walk about the village, holding out their arms-receiver and shouting, Hook ya hook! Hook ya hook! Half afraid of incurring their displeasure, few of the villagers refuse to contribute a copper or portable cooked provisions. Most dervishes are addicted to the intemperate use of opium. Bang, a preparation of Indian hemp, arak, and other baleful intoxicants, generally indulging to excess whenever they have collected sufficient money. They are likewise credited with all manner of debauchery. It is this that accounts for their pale, haggard appearance. The following quotation from In the Land of the Lion and the Sun, and which is translated from the Persian, is eloquently descriptive of the general appearance of the dervish. The dervish had the dullard air, the maddened look, the vacant stare, 
that bang and contemplation give. He moved, but did not seem to live. His gaze was savage and yet sad, what we should call stark, staring mad. All down his back, his tangled hair flowed wild, unkempt. His head was bare. A leopard skin was over him flung. Around his neck huge beads were hung. And in his hand, ah, there's the rub, he carried a portentous club. After visiting the dervishes, I spend an hour in an adjacent Chai Khan, drinking tea with my escort and treating them to sundry well-deserved kalyans. Among the rabble collected about the doorway is a half-witted youngster of about ten or twelve summers, with a suit of clothes consisting of a waist-string and a piece of a rag about the size of an ordinary pen-wiper. He is the unfortunate possessor of a stomach disproportionately large, and which intrudes itself upon other people's notice like a prize pumpkin at an agricultural fair. This youth's chief occupation appears to be feeding melon rinds to a pet sheep belonging to the Chai Khan, and playing a resonant tattoo on his abnormally obtrusive paunch with the palms of his hands. This produces a hollow, echoing sound like striking an inflated bladder with a stuffed club, and considering that the youth also introduces a novel and peculiar squint into the performance, it is a remarkably edifying spectacle. Supper-time coming around, the soldiers show the way to an eating-place, where we sup off delicious bazaar kebabs one of the most tasteful preparations of mutton one could well imagine. The mutton is minced to the consistency of paste, and properly seasoned. It is then spread over flat iron skewers and grilled over a glowing charcoal fire. When nicely browned, they are laid on a broad, pliable sheet of bread in lieu of a plate, and the skewers withdrawn, leaving before the customer a dozen long, flat fingers of nicely browned kebabs, reposing side by side on the cake of wheaten bread, a most appeasing and digestible dish. Returning to the caravanserai, I dismiss my faithful soldiers with a suitable present, for which they loudly implore the blessing of Allah upon my head, and for the third or fourth time impress upon the caravanserajes the necessity of making my comfort for the night his special consideration. They fill that humble individual's mind with grandiloquent ideas of my personal importance by dwelling impressively on the circumstance of my having eaten with the governor, a fact they likewise have lost no opportunity of heralding throughout the bazaar during the afternoon. The caravanserai G spreads quilts and a pillow for me on the open balachana, and I at once prepare for sleep. A gentle-eyed and youthful Sayud, wearing an enormous white turban and a flowing gown, glides up to my couch and begins plying me with questions. The soldiers, noticing this as they are about leaving the courtyard, 
favour him with a torrent of imprecations for venturing to disturb my repose. A score of others yell fiercely at him in emulation of the soldiers, causing the dreamy-eyed youth to hastily scuttle away again. Nothing is now to be heard all around but the evening prayers of the caravanserai guests. Listening to the multitudinous cries of Allah il Allah around me, I fall asleep. About midnight I happen to wake again. Everything is quiet. The stars are shining brightly down into the courtyard, and a small grease lamp is flickering on the floor near my head, placed there by the caravanserai after I had fallen asleep. The past day has been one full of interesting experiences. From the time of leaving the garden of Mohammed Ali Khan, this morning in company with the Munshibashi, until lulled to sleep three hours ago by the deep-voiced prayers of fanatical Mohammedans, the day has proved a series of surprises, and I seem more than ever to have been the sport and plaything of fortune. However, if the fickle goddess never used anybody worse than she has used me today, there would be little cause for complaining. As though to belie their general reputation of sanctimoniousness, a tall, stately Sayud voluntarily poses as my guide and protector en route through the awakening bazaar toward the Tabriz gate next morning, cuffing obtrusive youngsters right and left and chiding grown-up people whenever their inordinate curiosity appeals to him as being aggressive and impolite. One can only account for this strange condescension on the part of this holy man by attributing it to the marvellous civilizing and levelling influence of the bicycle. Arriving outside the gate, the crowd of followers are well repaid for their trouble by watching my progress for a couple of miles down a broad, straight roadway, admirably kept and shaded with thrifty chenars or plane trees. Wheeling down this pleasant avenue, I encounter mule trains, the animals festooned with strings of merrily jingling bells, and camels gaily caparisoned, with huge nodding tassels on their heads and pack saddles and deep-toned bells of sheet-iron swinging at their throats and sides. Likewise the omnipresent donkey heavily laden with all manner of village produce for the coy market. My road after leaving the avenue winds around the end of projecting hills, and for a dozen miles traverses a gravelly plain that ascends with a scarcely perceptible gradient to the summit of a ridge. It then descends by a precipitous trail into the valley of Lake Urumia. Following along the northern shore of the lake, I find fairly level roads, but nothing approaching continuous wheeling, owing to washouts and small streams leading from a range of mountains nearby to the left, between which and the briny waters of the lake my route leads. Lake Urumia is somewhere near the size of Salt Lake, Utah, and its waters are so heavily impregnated with saline matter that one can lie down on the surface and indulge in a quiet, comfortable snooze. 
at least this is what i am told by a missionary at tabriz who says he has tried it himself and even allowing for the fact that missionaries are but human after all and this gentleman hails originally from somewhere out west there is no reason for supposing the statement at all exaggerated had i heard of this beforehand i should certainly have gone far enough out of my course to try the experiment of being literally rocked on the cradle of the deep near midday i make a short circuit to the north to investigate the edible possibilities of a village nestling in a cul de sac of the mountain foothills the resident khan turns out to be a regular jovial blade sadly partial to the flowing bowl when i arrive he is perseveringly working himself up to the proper pitch of booziness for enjoying his noontide repast by means of copious potations of arak he introduces himself as hassan khan offers me arak and cordially invites me to dine with him after dinner when examining my revolver map etc the khan greatly admires a photograph of myself as a peculiar proof of ferengi skill in producing a person's physiognomy and blandly asks me to make him one of himself doubtless thinking that a person capable of riding on a wheel is likewise possessed of miraculous all-round abilities end of section thirty nine